Welcome to the podcast where I invite you on a journey to explore meaning, vulnerability and purpose through the lens of a life lived in geekdom. I'm David Monteith and I am the Naked Geek. And welcome back to the boudoir for the last episode of season one of The Naked Geek. Um, today, I've got a friend in the boudoir. His name is Mark Meir. Now, I am, I used to love gaming when I was younger and life has kind of got in the way. Just being a parent, being an actor, blah, 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 blah. It's all got in the way. Um, so one thing had to give and that thing really was gaming. And you know, those of you who've got children and some and jobs and the rest of it still manage to game, I salute you because I, I just I just haven't got it. However, one of the games which uh, my best friend Barry, who you've heard me interview him here, uh, suggested for me, knowing me, said you will love this game. It combines everything you're about: space opera, epic storylines, great characters, great characterization, fantastic voice acting, um, brilliant speeches, people putting it on the line, self-sacrifice, all those things which, in my mind, make a story great, are in this series of games called Mass Effect. I am. Um, I bought it, but you know, life, as I said. Um, so, but when I got the opportunity to get Mark Marion, who plays um, one of the characters, Commander Shepard, the main character in Mass Effect, I, I jumped at the chance, whether I'd played it or not. Um, I really wanted to touch the mind of someone who was a geek doing the thing. Basically, I wanted to talk to the guy that got the job that I wanted. Yeah, let's see how that goes. Meet Mark. <laughs> Mark, welcome. I I should say I'm not naked. You'll be happy to see. So um, yeah. <laughs> Thanks for having me. And I mean, I can only confirm that you're clothed from the waist up. So this this is true. I won't be standing up to adjust anything at all. Just uh, keep everybody happy there. Um, but yeah, welcome to the boudoir. I am. You know, I often start an episode talking about my favorite tipple. Do you have one? Oh, I tend to be a beer man myself. Although, actually, during the pandemic, I found myself drinking quite a few dark and stormies, which is uh, ginger beer with dark rum and a bit of lime. I am putting that on my list. I have never heard of dark. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And uh, I've mostly been drinking that because I just before the pandemic hit, I got myself a, a nice Cthulhu tiki mug. And uh, that was the recipe that came with. So I, I decided to uh, imbibe in that. It was quite nice. Yeah. Nice. Lovely. Thank you for that recommendation. I am I'm quite excited because someone I was, I put a little call out to say, you know, does anyone know anybody who uh, is a celebrity and has got uh, an, and is a geek and a friend of mine, friend of ours, Phil Hunter. Mm -hmm. Oh uh, yes. He said, he said, check out Mark. So I had a look and this everywhere I looked is like your geek heritage was just shining through. I, I wear it on my sleeve. Oh, well, I love it. And it was great. You know, we, we just connected here and I looked swords. You've got swords on the wall, a mask, and there's <laughs> a do. vampire hunting kit. And then you got up to get your tea and it was like a Batman gaming chair. <laughs> and I was like, this, yes, it is. Yeah. this guy has my heart. So. <laughs> <laughs> and behind me, of course, you can also see my uh, with the vampire hunting kit, of course, but also the cabinet of curiosities, uh, various things in there. You're including a copy of the Necronomicon fantastic mm -hmm. yeah let's actually that that's something of note let's take that out 
This was actually uh, built by a man named Jason McKittrick uh, for use in an off-Broadway production of The Hound. Uh, And Jason, of course, could have just done the cover as he did very lovingly and and maybe the pages that it needed to be open to. But he went above and beyond and he basically filled the entire the entire book with actual entries on Lovecraftian deities, uh, all in Latin, uh, no less. I don't even want to think about how long that took. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's quite an excellent prop. That is uh, beautiful. mm -hmm. And uh, I actually got my wife this for our 10th anniversary uh, gift. Nice. Mm -hmm. Oh, got got to to love a geeky relationship. Indeed. And uh, our, our wedding anniversary is Halloween as well. So that's coming. Our 20th is actually coming up this year. 20? How, how old are you, man? I'm 50. Oh, uh, I've, I've just suffered that milestone birthday in July. Let's go. Let's go way back. Where does it start for you as a kid? Well, hmm. what's, your, what's your oldest geeky memory? Can you remember? Was it, was it your parents showing you stuff? Was it something you found on your own? Was it? Uh, well, I... I do have a very early geeky memory. In fact, uh, I learned how to read from a, one of those old Hostess uh, cupcake and Twinkie ads, you know, that yeah, used to feature yeah, all yeah. the superheroes. And yeah. I particularly remember it was one that featured the Hulk and the villains were the Abomination and the Wendigo. Wow. Yes. How, old are you, how old are you, do you reckon? Uh, I think it was probably it was pre-grade one, so probably like five, five wow. years old, I think. Yeah. I think and in what, fact, yeah. pri- prior to actually being able to read it, I tricked my parents into thinking I could read it because they, of course, had read it aloud to me. And then I just memorized what they said and read it back without actually reading it. And then, then of course, once they figured that out, I, I learned to read it properly. Brilliant. My, <laughs> you remind me of my six-year-old, who's my middle child. And she did exactly, I just remember looking at her in awe of her reading skills and then realizing that her just memory was fantastic. So, yeah, so just, just very good mnemonic skills. Yeah, <laughs> brilliant. Good work. Do you remember the impression it made on you? I was um, in one of my pod- solo podcasts, I talked about the first comic I ever bought in a market stall was a Fantastic Four 109. And it was something about the cover and the story and the doom. And I I think I must have been eight and I'd never seen anything like this on, on, on page. And just really, it kind of struck really deep. I mean, was there something that, was it that that struck deep into you? Did it, did it cause any resonance or? Yeah, I'd say, I mean, the art, of course, uh, you know, being a kid, uh, a visual medium is uh, very attractive. And uh, I, I also had the advantage of uh, my father uh, was a doctor in a small town uh, and was friends with, you know, as would make sense, friends with the, the uh, pharmacist. And the pharmacist, of course, would be where you would get your comic books in, in a small town. Uh, they had, of course, the old style spinner rack. And because I uh, sort of had access to that, sometimes my parents might on a weekend go over to visit them when the when the pharmacy was closed and they lived in an apartment above the pharmacy. Uh, And so to keep me occupied, they used to let me go down into the pharmacy when it was closed into not, you know, not the pharmacy section, obviously, but but down to where the comics were. And uh, well, in a way, in a sense, yes, uh, because I had full access to that spinner rack uh, and was able to. I'd say read a lot more comics than than a kid of my age would normally have access to and and you know read the entire line of DC and Marvel comics that had come out that week and uh yeah that that was certainly an early gateway drug if you will uh, uh to geekness yeah. I I hate this question I'm about to ask you I actually hate mm-hmm. it and yet I keep asking it sure. were you a DC or a Marvel guy 
Uh, so, well, because of that origin story, which I've just explained to you, I never differentiated. I always, from a very early age, I had the thing of, yes, these are both occurring in two different universes. And within the DC universe, there's subsets of, of universes. You've got Earth 1 and Earth 2 and Earth 3. This was pre-crisis, of course. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I, I was a big fan of the What If Marvel comic books, which were all about alternate realities and, and different universes. So for me, as a kid, I always just saw DC and Marvel as two separate but equal universes. Yeah, and, and it's just like, well, these I know which superheroes live in which universe. And occasionally, very occasionally, uh, especially back then, there would be crossovers. So I remember my eyes bugging out of my head when the Spider-Man Superman crossover came out in the seventies or the, uh, the Batman Hulk, which I think was early eighties and followed by the X-Men Teen Titans crossover. Uh, So when I first saw that, even though I was very young, when I first saw that Superman Spider-Man crossover, I realized the significance of it. It's like these universes are not typically breached. You, yeah. you don't get mind these blown. <laughs> yeah, mind was blown. And and of course, those were printed in the huge oversized treasury editions, uh, which when you're a child are even bigger than the size of you, a comic book that's, <laughs> yeah. that's nearly as tall as you. And uh, they were certainly enjoyable to pour through. I am. Are you watching the uh, Marvel What If TV show? Oh, yes. Religiously. Yeah. I'll hey, be, how, how are you finding uh, it? I'm loving it. Yeah, I've I've stayed up till one in the morning in my time zone to watch it every every week. Brilliant. What um do you have a favorite so far of the what ifs? Hmm. I the T'Challa Star Lord one definitely was up there. Though although Party Thor, uh, <laughs> that was all, you know what if Loki was an only child? Uh, that was fantastic. The Thor Captain Marvel battle was great. Very uh very Warner Brothers. Uh, you know knocking each other to different continents yeah. that sort of thing. Uh, uh, they, they were both great. Although I have, I, I enjoy, even though those two sort of lighter and more optimistic episodes have been my favorites so far. Uh, I have really enjoyed the downer ones, uh, because that's what, what if always was when I was a yeah, kid, yeah, you know, yeah. the, the number of times that what if ended with the Phoenix force devouring the earth or Galactus showing up and just killing everyone, uh, yeah. <laughs> That tended to be, I mean, that's, that was what old What If comics were like. It was, it always gave the impression of like, well, it's a very good thing that things occurred as they did in the mainstream universe, because, because. You can see even, even a slight deviation would have resulted in complete disaster for everyone involved. So, yeah. So going back to you as a kid, um, what was it like? Because uh, for me, growing up as a, as a geeky kid, there wasn't many of us. No. Uh, around no, I mean, we're, we're of around the same age, so we mm-hmm. know... We know what it was like in the wastelands of the the seventies and I mean, uh, and eighties. Really, uh, I mean, I'm I'm going to say that not even until the turn of the century did it really become such a juggernaut and a cultural force, because that was post. Uh, you know, Batman, of course, in eighty nine was like an early yeah. outlier of like you know just how much of a pop culture juggernaut uh, superhero stuff could become. But by 2000, uh, you know, early, early 2000s, you had the X-Men movies had come out or the first couple. Uh, you had Spider-Man had come out. Marvel Universe, like the MCU itself, had not quite gestated mm-hmm. yet. But that's that's when I think, think, think things started to turn around, not just for comics, uh, but also uh, that's when Lord of the Rings came out where mm-hmm. suddenly you had something that was very niche, very geeky, you know, like fantasy did not rake in the big bucks star you know star wars is, can be described as a space fantasy but that's when it's see star wars of course has always been 
a huge cultural force. But yeah. that's when everything seemed to congeal. You already had Star Wars, which was this huge thing. You started to get superhero movies becoming more and more of their own dominating genre. Uh, and then you had Lord of the Rings, which was introducing fantasy, Harry Potter coming out at the same time. That's when that's when I think things really turned around. That's when you start started to see conventions just explode in size. And con conventions up to that point had always been, as you say, there weren't many of us. So the conventions were yeah. the places where we would all band together. And, the disciples. Uh, <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah. Make a pilgrimage, so to speak. Yeah. So, so what was it like as a kid? Was I mean, uh, How was life? Was it easy? Was it hard? Did it have its trials? And, and what, uh, and I suppose in that I'm also asking, um, what I mean, comics obviously made a huge sort of resonance in your heart. And what, what did they mean to you as you were growing up? And... Uh, well, as you say, there weren't many of us. And that meant that you didn't have anyone you could discuss your interests and hobbies with. Like, you know, people who liked sports, of course, you can, you can <laughs> strike up a conversation with anyone about that. But it did, I think, give me an appreciation for, uh, you know, not just the uh, comic books and that sort of art but art in general and I was I tended to be you know a more scholastically minded kid as geeks often are uh, so had no interest in sports at all uh, but <laughs> yeah. but loved to read and loved to read comic books specifically and they were uh, again in, in a certain sense they were you know a sort of hidden knowledge that only I had access to you know especially you know, when the Marvel handbooks came out I memorized them I memorized all the statistics from you know, I could tell you how tall the thing was and how much he could lift 85 <laughs> tons by the way six feet tall exactly and 85 tons good to know uh, good to know yeah. and that that was in the 80s I think they've retroactively made him taller but I like the fact that he's like no he's just six feet even he's three feet wide but he's six feet tall and uh so <laughs> that plus also Dungeons and Dragons when that came along um Certainly, it was not as easy as it is now to find a game or find people to play with. Like when I was growing I mean, up, I basically, I basically had to teach people how to play and then always be the dungeon master. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. I like it much better now, where I can get a lot more playing. How old were you when you discovered Dungeons and Dragons? Uh, fairly young, like probably about uh, ten years old. And what was that? I mean, I I do remember before Dungeons and Dragons, they were like choose your own adventure books, which were kind of the precursor. Yeah, I, I mean, Dungeons and Dragons was around before those, and I actually was playing with older kids, so I started with advanced Dungeons and Dragons rather than the old red oh, and blue, words. right? Yeah, yeah, basic and expert books, and Hardcore. I did get those. I got those eventually, but it all it felt like oh, it feels like going back to training reels. It's like I want it to be much more detailed, and uh, so while I had the basic and expert sets, I barely played them. Uh, mm. I think I I ran Castle Amber one time uh the it was an expert module but for the most part it was all advanced and sometimes i would take basic stuff and adapt it into advanced uh so that that was a thing like being able to uh you know be because the older geeky kids they didn't have anyone to hang out with either so yeah. i had to, yeah it's like oh well i guess this younger kid can hang out with us because at least he knows the stuff see i find that interesting because i think geeks often get portrayed and still do even though it's no longer uh the norm still get portrayed as the lonely kid who kind of sits in his mum's basement and doesn't know how to talk to girls and so and so but what did you find that you know discovering role playing what did that do for your socialization well i credit it largely with being the start of my acting career because in the small town that i went to they had no 
no drama program whatsoever. It just wasn't an option. Uh, I had to take art by correspondence. Uh, it was right. either either scholastics or sports. I came down on the scholastic side of yeah. things. But uh, for the most part, there wasn't any any arts at all uh, that you had to do on your in your own time. And so being a dungeon master, especially, that was an introduction to doing character voices uh, because the people I, I played with, we tended to play for laughs. So, you know, Barney so, Rubble might end up being the innkeeper. Excellent, and, excellent. You know, it, it was mostly cartoon voices, let's face it. And then the occasional celebrity impressions because... Of course, we were all fans of SCTV, where, where impressions were a thing on that. And uh, certainly improvisation as well, because as any dungeon master can tell you, you can plan all you like, but your players yeah, are yeah. going to do whatever they want. And so your plans will go out the window very quickly and you have to be able to improvise. So yeah, Dungeons and Dragons uh, certainly helped uh, with that aspect of thing. And also becoming more comfortable speaking to a group of people because of course that's what you have to do uh when you're the dungeon master you have to set the scene for all the players and describe things so uh i would say it gave me the skills though i would say practically in the 80s playing dungeons and dragons was not a ticket to popularity i'll say that <laughs> i will definitely yep. say that yeah yeah i remember that but i, I love that, that i love that something that you're potentially ridiculed for doing by the majority is something that led you to where you are later in life. I, I think very that... true. And and of course, you also have to remember that this was, I was playing Dungeons and Dragons at the height of the satanic panic in the 80s. Oh, yes. Likewise. Yeah, so, so all of a sudden. And I, I had, had Christian parents as well. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, my parents uh, were probably more liberal, but we lived in a small town. And of course, there's it's <laughs> and at the school and as well that it 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 was just suddenly finding my geeky hobby uh, that I that I know because I played it is mostly about imagination and storytelling and and socializing with your friends is suddenly being falsely portrayed as this, this sort of satanic vehicle to the occult so uh yeah that that also very much shaped my worldview of of like i know i know that you're you're blatantly lying about this and yet you're <laughs> yeah. you're portraying yourself as uh, as being the defenders of children uh so yeah yeah it, oh, uh, I remember that it was an interesting so well. interesting time to be a nerd uh, specifically I, a dungeons and dragons player or if you liked heavy metal as well then which I oh did, yeah uh, yeah play the records yeah. backwards there was that whole mm -hmm. thing about, yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> I remember that I can't my in my head I was about eight, which I probably wasn't because I think everything that happened in my childhood happened at eight and it couldn't possibly have. But um I remember my parents bought me the basic Dungeons and Dragons set for for Christmas. And within two years, they were, as you know, devout Christians, desperately trying to get me to get rid of it because of the whole satanic thing. And it was it was like what what's what's happened here? How did this how did this come about? It was uh yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's documentaries on it uh, in, you know, in retrospect, uh, and it seems like a hilarious, hilarious thing. How could that ever have happened? But yeah, it's probably wise to always remain vigilant about yeah. that sort of thing. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I love it. I love it. So, so as a kid, what did you want to be when you grew up? Uh, you know, I probably, if you'd asked me, I would have said, uh, be what my dad is and uh, go into medicine. As a matter of fact, when I started university, I was in science with an eye to uh, doing that. Uh, and there's a lot of doctors in my family. My sister is a doctor, uh, my brother-in-law, uh, uh, my dad, my aunt. So it was sort of, yeah, it was, it was sort of, this is, this is what I'll probably end up doing. 
Uh, it was then that I discovered acting and discovered how much I enjoyed it and how much uh, I, I would really enjoy to pretend for a living, essentially. Uh, and that was not met with immediate uh, <laughs> uh, open arms by uh, my parents, my father in particular, but uh, he did come around. He did come around. And, you know, to this day, I still tease him about like, oh, I remember you didn't really like me playing Dungeons and Dragons or reading comic books. Yeah. Uh, and look what I do for a living now. God, see, this is, I mean, I, I studied applied biology at university and then, you know, Likewise, discovered acting and came to a point and I kind of I ignored it for a while and eventually went for it. And but my parents were like, you know, you need to become yes, you can pursue acting, but you need to become a doctor first or a lawyer or a scientist or something and all of that. <laughs> and then found my way through. Um, but how did that how did that how long was that evolution between I'm doing science? Acting's great. I'll do acting. How long did it take you to, to reach that decision? Was it oh, quite less, a tumultuous less decision? Less than a year, like within the first year uh, of university, I had. Did, did you like, drop out? Eh. Yeah, basically, I did. Yeah, I uh, I did switch to arts for a while, and then it was, was a compromise. <laughs> yeah, it was, and, and you know, take not not fine arts BFA. You have to audition to get into that. Uh, but essentially, I started acting. I started doing improv in particular, and uh, just started immediately booking all of these gigs. And it was sort of, well, I can pretend make things up on a stage in front of people and earn money right now so i don't think that i'll be getting my degree yeah so i i did drop out stay in school kids stay in school stay yeah it's it's important it just wasn't in my case but yeah it probably is for you yeah apparently i uh i literally had a a teenager his father sent him to me to ask my advice terrible idea because i gave the advice i thought was important which was not the reason the father had sent him to me <laughs> no he wanted sensible advice and, yeah but, but yeah, now he's yeah. following a career in music production he's got a great place at a great college and it's worked out and he dropped out of the course he was doing and dropping out has worked for him so i'm mm-hmm. a big fan of dropping out but i don't tell your parents i said that kids mm-hmm. um where were we so you you'd, you'd change and i love that change but improvisation let's talk about <laughs> So mm. just having a little look around, you did, a, what do you call it, an improvathon, improvathon? Yes. Uh, well, the one in London is called the Improvathon. Uh, we started something, jeez, uh, 25 years ago, I think. Uh, we do a improvised soap opera uh, here in Edmonton called Dynasty. I love and it. so it's an improv soap opera and, or at least it started that way, you know, you know 25 years before Uh and so the first couple of seasons were just a straight up parody of a soap opera and all the actors would have their their established character. You knew who you were playing, but essentially they and the audience would hear at the same time calls from the director. So it would be character A and character B meet in this location. And uh, of course, plot that threads would get generated just like on any soap opera. And uh, the director would follow up on them. You might follow up on them as an actor because, you know, oh, uh, that that thing we mentioned, I want to get back to that. And it was a continuing story. So it would go from week to week and the audience would come back to find out, you know, how the storylines evolved and what happened. Uh, and, and definitely it's a comedy soap opera. So almost a parody. Uh, we subsequently then, as seasons went on, uh, started changing the genre. So we did one set in ancient Rome and one set, you know, in uh, 1920 Chicago. Uh, and uh, it became a little more akin to, say, Blackadder at that point, because you had mm-hmm. the same cast of characters, and especially because we were jumping through time and different settings, uh, you know, doing like a science fiction Brilliant. when we did a Game of Thrones one at one point. 
Uh, and uh, that it was really fun. And we decided as a fundraiser one year to do a 48-hour uh, show. And that's what it's where it started. It was 48 hours. Uh, and that's when I actually joined. Uh, I was a guest from another theater company, Rapid Fire Theater. And they... Uh, it was a revelation. It was just like, oh, great. And it's much like like an RPG because you have this set character that is continuing on. Uh, and a lot of the actors do it without sleep uh, is the thing. And so, and yeah, so that's, that's what makes it a true experience. Because I'm going to jump in thing. here because the number that I've, the number I've written down here and when I wrote it down, I had to stop for a moment and go, this cannot be true. Because you did a 53 hour Yes. Yeah. Because we did that every year and we added an hour each year. We got up to 53 and then we realized it's impractical to expect the audience to stick around that late on a Sunday. So we capped it at that. Uh, when uh, some folks from uh, London came over and did our show, because we, uh, we'd often have guest performers from around the world to, to popped in and do it. Um, these were uh, some folks that worked with Ken Campbell, and a lot of them are also in uh, what's called the School of Night, which is a fantastic improv group uh, in the UK that you, if you ever get a chance to see them, please do. Uh, a number of them are also involved in Showstopper, the improvised musical, which is, right. uh, yeah, it, uh, it won an Olivier, if you can believe it, for an improvised production. Uh, and they're often, they often do shows in the West End. They do shows at the Edinburgh Fringe, uh, again. Highly recommended. I think I saw them in Edinburgh years ago. Have they been going for a while? They have been going for a while, yeah, because... I remember. It was amazing. It literally, uh, it was a show in, improvised every night. They are astounding. Uh, they have complete mastery of every musical theatre style. <laughs> they can sing a Sondheim song for you, Gilbert and Sullivan, and it will actually scan. It will be like, yes, that sounds like a, a Gilbert and Sullivan tune. That sounds like Sondheim. Uh, and they also apply that, uh, those of them that are in uh, the School of Night, they apply that to Shakespeare and Chaucer. So they can improvise a Shakespearean production in iambic pentameter. It's it's truly remarkable. Uh, and they are the folks who, when they came and saw our Sopathon, they began the Improvathon in London. And I believe there have been, hmm, I think I'm going to say 11 or 12 uh, Improvathons in London. I've done 10 of them. Uh, and they're brilliant, brilliant folks. Uh, I look forward to once the pandemic settles down, uh, getting over there and doing it again. But you, so you stayed awake for fifty-three hours improvising. Oh, I, I stayed awake for sixty hours because that's how long the show was, and then there was time on either side, and we all went out for beers afterwards, of course, because we had to, because we'd just been through <laughs> such an experience together. All of us sleep deprived, having been pretending to be someone else than ourselves for two straight days that's uh, crazy it's, man it's an amazing it's it's like a vision quest did, uh, did, it really did is. you need therapy afterwards i don't know if it's its own sort of therapy i find it's really it's, i i discover new things about improvisation and narrative every time i do one of these and uh having done it now i've done counting the ones that i've done in england and the ones in canada i've done it you know 25 or 30 times all the way through uh, and while you do go a bit loopy and hallucinate the first few times you do it, uh, subsequent <laughs> ones, I sort of miss the hallucinations, to be honest, because in subsequent ones, like, you know, by by the sixth or seventh one, you don't hallucinate at all. It's like you get very tired, of course, but you don't go to that complete giddy state, uh, <laughs> which which in some ways I miss, as I say. I, but I, yeah. I love that. I uh, I do another podcast called Geek Syndicate, and the guy I do it with and another friend, uh, once a year, they for a few years in a row, they did a 24-hour podcast, which was 24 one-hour-long interviews back-to-back. -back. 
mm-hmm. and you tune in at random times and you could tell when the hallucinations were setting in because you sit there and go, they're talking complete nonsense and they don't even know <laughs> it was it was it was beautiful it was beautiful but i'm i can't i'm just getting my head around 60 hours worth of staying awake and improvising and oh yeah yeah it's uh it is one of my favorite things to do oh it just the very thought thing was i, I want to do this and then part of me goes i i will fall asleep standing up <laughs> <laughs> some um, people do some people I, do. I don't doubt I and don't the other doubt. thing is there are audience members who come for the entire thing like they bring like sleeping bags and toothbrushes to the uh to the theater i'm i'm astounded i'm absolutely that's dedication <laughs> as a fan that's dedication but mind you you know people go and queue outside for out for days to buy stuff to buy very so, true you know? very true yeah it's it's quite the experience and so we've done it uh several locations around london uh the one in the uk uh we've done it at the park theater um yeah, there was a music hall that uh, that we've done it a couple of years uh, in a row, like an old Victorian music yep, hall. I, I, I forgot what it's called, but I know exactly what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Uh, my wife's performed there. Um, so you've found your groove now. You've found your way into performance. How did you find your way into video games? The old fashioned way. I just did uh, a, an audition uh, and it was one of those old fashioned cattle call auditions where Every actor in town basically showed up and spent a little time in the this booth at the studio that we were auditioning at, uh, laid down a few voices. And uh, I was one of the lucky ones that Bioware got back to uh, with a role. This was when they were doing. Oh, right. And that, was, that was straight. That was Bioware straight out the gate. Yes. Yeah. So one of their very first games was MDK2. Uh, and a bunch of friends of mine, they actually had two comedy troops uh, of my acquaintance do all the voices uh, for that. And I knew them, of course. And when I found out that they'd done this, and, and first of all, it was like, what Edmonton has a video game company. Uh, and <laughs> yeah. so I kept my ear to the ground. It's like, oh, if, if they're ever holding auditions, I'd, I'd certainly like to get in on that. And and they did. As I say, a, a big call went out. Uh, I was one of the lucky ones that Bioware got back to. Uh, and I got to do a single line in Baldur's Gate 2. Uh, and it was in the final cutscene as well. So you had to play the entire, you know, multiple yeah, yeah. hour game, probably 40 hour game uh, to get to my one line. Uh, and they liked that line well enough. Uh, at Do you remember the line? They, yes, uh, uh, of course. It's my first line in video games. Uh, it was, there was no need for concern. The fate of this fool is sealed. And I was playing <laughs> one of the, one of the evil cabal of, of ball clerics that were uh, that were plotting against the main character and essentially saying hmm, we'll get him in the sequel you know so uh yeah, nice yes and uh as i say that one line they subsequently hired me to do all the expansion packs for that like i got to play Siric, the god of murder in throne of ball uh, and I was very excited about that because Sirik is an established Forgotten Realms character that, you know, has been in right, novels. So, and so like that. you were so, already uh, primed in this. Yes. Yeah. It was just like, oh, I'm not cleric number three. I'm Sirik, the god well, of murder. Well, and, tell, yeah. just, let's just dive into that a little bit. Tell us that feeling of suddenly getting paid to do work for something that you're quite excited about anyway. Oh, yes. Yeah, it was it was a real thrill because it was not only am I a voice in a video game, I'm a voice in a Dungeons and Dragons video game and quite a quite a good one, quite one that's quite very influential. Uh, and uh, be, I, I would actually credit my Dungeons and Dragons experience with being perhaps the reason why Bioware mm. was calling me back so often because they were working on Dungeons and Dragons based games at the time. They knew that I knew Dungeons and Dragons and I didn't need a lot explained to me. 
So rather than, you know, putting me in the booth and then spending 20 minutes talking about what kobolds are and you know why yeah 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 uh i would just you go, already oh, this- know <laughs> yeah yeah it's like oh kobold he's lawful evil that, and uh uh so that shorthand may have may have actually helped uh get me hired again and again subsequently i worked on pretty much everything that bioware put out like i worked on jada empire i did demo work for the original knights of the old republic uh and then when mass effect came around uh, i was actually brought in before any casting was being done. I was I was brought in because I'd done so much monster work and things like mm. that uh, for, on various games. Uh, they brought me in to essentially create the base sounds for each alien race. Like this is what a typical Solarian will sound like. This is what a typical Krogan will sound like, and and on and on. Uh, so it was essentially a presentation that I did for the writers and and the game devs, uh, and. I thought, you know, I'll probably get some voice work when we do the actual game, probably some aliens, since I'm the one sort of creating what the base versions of these guys sound like. Uh, but during that process, I was asked to record to uh, record some lines as Commander Shepard and audition for the role. I did not hold out any help, hope of getting it. And every time they would come back to me while I was you know, doing other work on the game and say, oh, you've got another, you know, you've got a callback because they you know, were moving into the next stage. I I never pinned any hopes on it. I just can, thought. Can you yeah. remember how many rounds that was? It was several. T- yeah, there were at least three or four callbacks. I right. think I did. Yeah. Uh, and by the th- you know the third one, I'm being told it's like, well, it's down to you and two guys from LA. And I'm like, well, one of them will certainly get it. Uh, and I'll end up doing some monsters and aliens. Uh, but as luck would have it, here I am. I I was informed. Oh yes, you will be Commander Shepard, and you'll do some monsters and aliens. Did you at that point have an idea how big that game would become? I knew it would be a good game because Bioware made good games and they know new RPGs and I could definitely see the amount. And you were a gamer at this point. I I was a gamer. Yes, of course. So it would be, you know, I was looking at this like, oh, I'd I'd play this game if I wasn't in it. I'd be very excited about this game. Uh, I could also see the amount of care that had gone into not only the care, but the sheer amount of depth that had been added to the creation of the universe, like the, all the codex entries and the um, how well thought out the universe was. It felt very fully realized. So I knew it was going to be a good game uh, and quality often leads to success. Uh, so mm. I didn't quite anticipate how much people would embrace Mass Effect and how important it would become to some people and the kind of outpouring of creativity and love that Mass Effect fans uh, show it to this day is awe-inspiring, to be honest. Like, to see the cosplay stuff, to see uh, prop work, fan art, things like that, it's it really is inspiring. So, confession time here. I haven't... So, well, I've got it here. I've got the trilogy right mm-hmm. here. Because uh, my best friend, who's known me since 1980... Uh, knows me better than anybody and I stopped gaming literally probably literally the day I had my first child because life just got in the way and I couldn't understand everything else that is um, a very noble reason to not have time yeah. to play games I think the last game I played was Deus Ex um, oh uh with uh, a friend of mine Elias Defexus is Adam oh, Jensen brilliant nice Ooh, I mean and brilliant. I loved that game and it was like one of the first um round of games to come around which had sort of divergent endings uh that you could affect by your gameplay and it was amazing and that was literally the last game i ever finished um uh and then my best friend said to me i know you dave if there's one game you play in your entire life it's got to be mass effect 
I know you, and this will be your game. And he goes, You sounds like you have a very wise friend. Yeah, I do. And then he went on to talk about your performance, really. He went, some of the best speeches I've ever heard, the most sort of emotive I've ever felt doing something. He was just so full of praise. Oh, thank you. I kind of went out and I got this game. And life still got in the way. So I've had it for about four years now and I've played 20 minutes worth because I haven't got around. <laughs> well, but, at this stage, uh, you probably want to get the Legendary Edition, which just came out this year. Yep. Yeah, uh, it's, it's, yes. Because I would say if you're going if, if to play it at this late date, you might as well play it with all the modern uh, bells and whistles. I hear it. I'm just going waiting for my uh, my youngest to start school full time, and then I can just spend my entire days, you know. So exactly, it's yeah. what parents do when their kids are at school: just you know, mm. go go karting or something. Um, so I uh, and the whole space opera thing—that's that's right up my my street. And people putting it on the line—that's right. Yeah, up my street. I think I think you will enjoy it. Yes. When you were halfway through recording for this game, how are you feeling about the? Game? I mean, it's hard work while you're doing it, and you know, putting your voice on the line and, and so on. But as it, as it was shaping up, how, how were you feeling as the game was going along, as you were working? Well, we, I mean, we worked on it for quite a while. Like it, it was, I think, over a year uh, mm. before the first one. And essentially, once the first one came out, uh, we'd start fairly soon, start working on the second one. So uh, I, I didn't really have time to take it in. Uh, and especially the scope of its success. I think the first time I fully realized it was when someone walked by me at a convention fully dressed as Commander Shepard in like a screen worthy set of armor uh, wow. with lights in the entire bit. It was just like, okay, that guy made that, that he probably in his garage in his spare time and he's clearly very skilled. And yeah, that was, uh, that was inspired what it really by home. something you did. That's got to mm-hmm. be quite the feeling. Yeah. yeah. And, and, it, and it hasn't really slowed down, has it? Uh, no, certainly not with the uh, with the re-release with the uh, Mass Effect uh, Legendary Edition. Uh, there's been uh, a whole new burst of interest. You're living my dream. You're living my dream. Silly question: Have you played it? Oh yes, yeah, I did complete playthrough Renegade and Paragon playthroughs of one and two. I didn't actually get to do a full playthrough of three because I played a bunch at uh, Bioware before release, uh, and but I don't have access to those files, so I would have had to replay huge chunks of the game when i when i got it also there wasn't the you know the impetus to that i've got to i've got to finish this before i see the next one but i have watched i've i've essentially sat and watched people play mass effect 3 i've seen uh the dlcs uh certainly i have been privy to all like the uh the memes and uh repurposing like for example my catchphrase will bang okay uh that is not my catchphrase that was not that doesn't appear in the game but people will ask me to write that on things so much because of the manslayer videos uh the gamer right. videos okay uh and i was a fan of his stuff like his skyrim and stuff stuff uh before he he did mass effect when i found out he was doing a mass effect one i was very excited and he ended up doing like i don't know a dozen of them uh and, but as i say will bang okay has become just as much as a catchphrase for shepherd as i should go or my favorite story on the citadel brilliant brilliant i am um, renegade versus paragon do you have can you explain what that is for those who are listening who might not be full-on gamers right well uh, a lot of video games of course give you the choice between in star wars terms the light side and the dark side or good and evil and you know fable and the the knights of the old republic things like that uh this game let's essentially let you choose between paragon and renegade and they weren't necessarily good and evil because in both cases you're still trying to save the galaxy mm-hmm. but you could do it in the style of a very noble 
upstanding uh, Boy Scout type, or you could be a borderline psychopath who is still saving the galaxy, but it's just not being very polite about it at all. How do you feel? Have you you've played both? How do you feel playing Renegade? Because I I kind of whenever when I was playing and I used to kind of I had that choice to to be not the nicest. I just felt bad. <laughs> did you? I, mean, I did... usually do any, any of the games like that that have a morality system. I usually do my you know evil playthrough first. I did that on Fallout. I did that. Yeah, like. In Fallout 3, for example, I bombed Megaton. I totally nuked Megaton to get that nice apartment. I did that. Uh, <laughs> you know, I did my Sith playthrough on Knights of the Old Republic first. Uh, because then when I do my good playthrough or Paragon or what have you, uh, I feel like I'm redeeming myself for being, for being such a jerk the first time through. Uh, and I do like to explore, like, oh, how far will they let me push this? You know, like when they, in Knights of the Old Republic, for example, when it's like, oh, they'll actually let me use the force to push the Wookiee to kill his friend. Will they let me do? Yeah, I'm gonna, I, I got to see that happen again. So that <laughs> I, like, I like to explore the limits of the game. But in Mass Effect, for example, I I couldn't go full Renegade uh, because my uh, my Renegade playthrough. Uh, I was really my Renegade just became really good buddies with uh, with Rex. And uh, and then later transferred that to Grunt. So anytime the Krogan came up, my renegade always backed the Krogan, even if it wasn't the renegade choice. It was like, no, man, the Krogan are my bros. So they're my brogans. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so you've done a, a fair amount of cosplay yourself, if I'm not wrong. I have, yes. What have yeah. you done? Uh, I tend to prefer supervillain cosplay to superhero cosplay. Uh, so a lot of my comic book costumes are all villains. And I tend to like obscure villains as well, like not necessarily the the A-list villains or the the marquee villains. Mm. Uh, so let's see. I've done the obscure ones. I've done Super Adaptoid, uh, Super Scroll, uh, Hobgoblin, uh, Sinestro. I mean, you know, Sinestro nice. is fairly popular. Yeah. Yeah. Bizarro. Uh, I do like the villains, uh, and I tend, as I say, to go with that. I have cosplayed Commander Shepard. That was my next question. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what, what does uh, that feel like? I mean, you've, you've done the voices, and now you're in the armor. What does that feel like? Oh, it's, it was great, especially because the armor that was built for me uh, by my friend David Carpenter, he uh, he basically just called me up and went, hey, man, I'm going to build you a suit of Commander Shepard armor. Because I, I, he was in Commander Shepard when I met him, like the year pri- uh, previous at DragonCon. So when the when the next dragon con was coming up a few months before he just called me and let let me know he was making me uh, a suit of armor as a gift i was like well the least i can do is wear it uh so i wore it in the parade that year and that that was great that was that was lots of fun getting to meet all the the fans and hang out with the fans in a very nice set of commander they they realized it was you that must have yeah that that's quite special Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, I've on. also cosplayed uh, Vorcha, a friend of mine uh, uh, from Composite Effects down in Louisiana. They made me a fantastic Vorcha mask uh, from, and, and I do the voices of all the Vorchas. Uh, so yeah, they they made me this beautiful custom silicone mask, uh, and I got some other friends to build me the Vorcha armor. So I've done that. Most recently at DragonCon this year, I did a little bit of a mashup costume. Uh, Commandalorian Shepherd. <laughs> so it was basically the Shepherd armor, but with you know Mando elements. And I had a little uh, baby uh, uh, Liara with me, so like a, a little Asari baby, as opposed to uh, a baby Yoda or Grogu. Awesome, awesome. Um, what would you say? What well, I think I know the answer to this, but looking back over mm. your life, what would you say was the biggest geeky influence on who you are today? 
Hmm. It's hard to say because as I mentioned, Dungeons and Dragons was very much uh, some of the first acting and improv I did. Uh, but on the whole, it was probably comic books. It was probably comic books, though it's very close. D and D and comic books are, yeah. yeah, they're they're very much entwined. Who was your favorite comic character, and who is your favorite comic book character? Ah, uh, same answer, Doctor Doom. Uh-huh. As I mentioned, I'm a villains guy, and he You're is guy. he is the super villain as far as I'm concerned. Cool, nice. What the last couple of years have been quite hard for a lot of people. What would you say is one of the best shows that's kind of got you through or you would recommend to someone having a hard time? Sit down, make yourself a cup of tea, watch this show. Let's see. Well, the shows that got me through the pandemic specifically uh, would be, uh, I really enjoyed WandaVision. I've I've actually, the entire MCU uh, TV lineup. So WandaVision has been great, like Winter Soldier or Falcon and the Winter Soldier uh really really liked loki and am digging what if so very much so yeah that that entire slate of tv shows uh lovecraft country i really dug lovecraft oh, country. yeah yeah mm-hmm. yeah so you i'm sorry the- they're not getting a second season yeah mm. but uh let's see oh uh umbrella academy yeah. very very good and yeah. uh, a friend of mine is actually on it uh ken hall uh, who played he was in the first season he was uh, essentially pogo's body actor like he was the right, gotcha. on set nice. pogo did all the mocap for that but he's also herb uh who works in the uh he's sort of like one of the bureaucrats who then ends up running the the uh, time agency gotcha uh, yeah so you, uh, so you do like the shows that come a little bit out of left field yes yeah let's see i mean the other ones doom patrol doom patrol uh, the, oh the my boys man boys so yeah. i mean you, you can see a common theme it's like Absolutely. all these superhero shows but there are a lot of superhero shows right now let's face so it many. i i think one of the things that made me really thrill to one division and doom patrol was the fact that they kind of broke the mold of the standard storyline they were very different mm. they just kind of hit you like i said hit you from left field went, what is going on this is fascinating yes uh, yeah and i think it's it's the fact that there is so much superhero stuff that it can sort of branch out. It doesn't all have to be a straight up action adventure story. It can be, as you say, explorations of different genres. It can Mm. be coming out of left field. Uh, And I think we're going to see more of that. Yeah. I think one of the things I liked about Loki was, um, uh, because a lot of people said there was too many, there was just too much exposition and talking. And I was like, I quite liked the talking because of what it showed us of the relationships that we're building. And Mm -hmm. what would you say to your 12 year old self from the vantage point of where you are now uh just you wait (laughs) (laughs) because man i i know i've been waiting for some of the movies that we got since i was you know when i was 12 years old the idea of an x-men movie would have blown my mind the idea that we'd have you know multiple spider-man movies uh by this point uh or the fact that you know an iron man movie would be such a big deal and that the avengers would be you know this huge huge franchise yeah yeah also i mean again not only comic books but also dungeons and dragons is a love of mine the way that dungeons and dragons has exploded in popularity it now eclipses what it was in the 80s so yeah i would i would tell i would tell him that he had lots to look forward to it's a golden time Mm -hmm. Uh, and what would you what would you tell a 12 year old now in this day and age about, uh, you know, about, what would your, and I'm thinking particularly from a geeky perspective, is there anything that your geekdom has taught you that you think would be worth passing on? 
Well, I'd probably do the old man thing of saying, like, you don't know how good you have it these days. Yeah. Well, when I was young. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, God, I'm doing that. I'm doing that all the time. I, I have to, like, make I found myself to stop doing myself. That. Yeah. Yeah. Just like, no, no, just just don't don't do that. Don't be that guy. But um, I, I would I would tell them that I'm somewhat jealous because they're going to get to see uh, a lot of stuff that I won't. So enjoy it. 12 year old mm. hypothetical 12 year old is it a hopeful future we're looking at in terms of uh geekness or in terms of society as a whole oh, i know it's very it's very easy to be pessimistic these days uh there's certainly there's certainly plenty of fuel for pessimism but uh i like to think that that perhaps we will take some positive lessons away from all of this i certainly hope so uh in terms of geekiness though it's never looked brighter really right golden time it's a golden all time the, yeah seeing all the things that are coming down the pipe so at least there's that at least there's that for to provide us an escape i just i think i did meant to mention and it just a purpose of nothing really was that you got to meet you got to work with paul hogan got to work with paul hogan yeah the Battlestar galactica Oh, Michael Hogan. Michael Hogan. Why Paul? Who's Paul? <laughs> uh, <laughs> I believe Paul Hogan is Crocodile Dundee. Yeah, that's. <laughs> I was like, I would remember working with Paul Hogan. That would, <laughs> I, I would have noted that if I'd worked with Crocodile Dundee. Uh, no, I did. I did get to work with Michael Hogan, an amazing, amazing fellow. And uh, yeah, it was it was a real honor to get to uh, not only work with him, but to get to hang out with him uh, a bit mm. subsequently at cons and things like that. Great fella, great fella. And uh, I'm not sure if you know, but he's actually uh, suffered some uh, health setbacks recently. Yeah, uh, he, he suffered a, a head injury that had some serious consequences. Uh, he's in re rehabilitation now. And there's actually, uh, I believe, a GoFundMe uh, yeah, I think it is, I that. that's, that's sort of yeah. contributing to his medical expenses. Uh, so I certainly wish Michael all the mm. best. And, I met him uh, at con in london and he was actually finishing dinner with his wife and i thought i can't go and disturb them while they're having dinner but i want to talk to him so badly and i went up and i said oh, i'm so sorry for interrupting he was like no grab a chair pull up and i was like oh okay i was just gonna say my stuff and get out of there and he's like grab a chair how you find we had this chat with him and sue and it was i was like what a gracious uh what a lovely gracious yeah. man i was like yeah so. such a nice guy and uh Certainly, certainly uh, not deserving of that particular uh, card being dealt to him. So uh, I wish him all the best. And uh, if any listeners uh, want to support, I believe uh, Fleet is Family is a sort of group of Battlestar Galactica fans that have uh, banded together and they're having sort of semi-regular auctions of memorabilia. And uh, of course, the, a lot of the cast from BSG is donating uh, their signatures to that as well uh, to raise funds for Michael's recovery. Uh, and uh, we certainly wish him all the best as well. Uh, all cool. the Mass Effect cast that knew him and loved him. Last question for you. Is there a dream job that you'd like to do? Hmm. Well, I mean, we talked about my favorite superhero or supervillain rather. So getting to voice Dr. Doom in something. Yes, that would, that would be, that would be something, of course. Uh, I did, funnily enough, I got to, essentially uh, do that because uh, I have a TV show called Tiny Plastic Men that I was one of the creators of and writers and, and uh, stars of. Uh, and I introduced a character uh, who was a very clear homage to, a thinly veiled homage to uh, Dr. Doom uh, named Dr. Von Chaos. And you can actually see his mask. That red, the red one. That red one. He was sort of yeah. visually, he kind of looks like a combo of the Red Skull and Dr. Doom. 
Yeah, uh, I thought it was the red skull at first. So nice, yeah. No, there's a, you probably can't see uh, with the resolution, but there's actually a big chaos symbol on the on the right. forehead, and his his costume is very very Doctor Doom influenced. The hood and the cape and the armor. What, what, uh, what's Doctor Doom's voice then? Uh, well, I can do Doctor. I'll do you Doctor Von Chaos's voice, yes. which I will remind you is a very broad comic parody of Doctor Doom. <laughs> yeah. uh, so he would say something like. Fools, kneel before the might of von chaos. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I'm not going to pay you for that, just so you no, know. No, no, that's, that. fine. that's <laughs> fine. I will mention, though, that Tiny Plastic Men, I believe, is still available uh, in the UK on Amazon Prime. Anything else you want to tell us about that we could love to, that we could go and have a, a look at or... I think we've covered all the bases. I mean, Excellent. you know, you know, I'm getting ready for Halloween uh, and that's my 20th wedding anniversary. Hopefully we're going to be going to uh, the Vampire Ball in nice. New Orleans. Yeah, but nice. we'll again, we will have to see what travel is like because that's weeks away. Who Anything could happen between. Yeah, you're not that. wrong. Yeah. Oh, yeah. the one thing we haven't talked about mm. is how amazing is it to love comics and your name be an alliteration? <laughs> it comes in very handy. I also don't have a middle name, so it, it's just Mark Mir. That's it. So I'm Brilliant. very, I'm very much like a comic book character. Thank you so much for spending this time with me. I've really enjoyed um, getting to grips with your geekdom and seeing where it's led you. I think it's, uh, I think this, there's something truly uh, inspirational there for the young geeks to just kind of follow that dream through and just to know that you know, actually following your heart sometimes does does work out <laughs> it does on occasion on occasion on occasion <laughs> um but yes thank you so much for giving me the time you've given me i really really appreciate it thank you very much for having me david i really enjoyed chatting with mark um there's just something about chatting to uh, you know it's a guy's in the same place as me he's an actor and a geek doing the stuff he loves. And every time I'll get a job that's even remotely, or even if I get an audition that's remotely related to something geeky, my heart just soars. Um, so it's really interesting for me to just kind of get Mark's perspective on where he's at and where he's been in his journey. Now, uh, as I've said before, with these interviews, I never edit them straight away. I want to give them a little time to marinate. And when I come back to edit them, I start listening again. And I'm, it's like I'm listening to it fresh. And I was asked that question you know, in in thinking back on it, what was what have I got out of talking to this person? How has it benefited my life? Uh, and I wonder what it was going to be. I wonder if it's going to be technical stuff about the the technical thing of being a voiceover or acting or getting in the studio, or if it was going to be, um, you know, really deep delve in some of the geek stuff that I was going to love. But you know what came out of this most for me, and this is all about Mark, um, and it's his overwhelming positivity and he tells his story and about the choices he made and even when some of the choices never seemed clear he just seemed positive about it and going into the jobs he's got he's positive and meeting fans it's positive and the way he approaches his relationships and um the way he enjoys the people around him i particularly noted when he showed us the necronomicon and it wasn't just, you know, this is great because this was made by this guy and gave this guy props and, and you know, look, look, look great it is. And just wanted to share that positivity and that joy. Um, even the advice he would give to an older him, uh, to a younger him, sorry. It's all about embracing the positivity, looking at the way the world has changed and thinking there's some great stuff here. And even though times are hard, 
that we can still get something great from this. And let's hope we're moving to, to greater times. And I think every now and again, just need that injection of positivity. Sometimes I find myself going down the road of the grumpy old geek. In my day, conventions were better. In my day, blah, blah, blah. And I can feel that creeping in. And I just need to remember, really, it's a golden time. Whether everything's to my liking or not, it's a golden time. It's all right. It's good. Yeah. So I think uh, for the last episode of season one, I just want to say thanks to Mark for just giving me that reminder. It's all right that we can find positivity wherever we are. And I... I feel like it's not a naive positivity. It's a positivity that takes into account that life can be hard, but we search for the best that we can anyway. Don't wait for that joy and positivity to come for you. Go looking for it. Inject it into the things you do. The little things, the small things, the tiny things, the big things, however you can do it, inch by inch, centimeter by centimeter, if that's all you can manage, go for it. Go for it. Um, so thank you to Mark for capping off season one of The Naked Geek. Um, I'm hoping to be back in July uh, once the tour I'm done is finished, but I'll have a whole new series planned by then with new guests and so on and so on. I really hope this has been good for you. I hope that you've done more than enjoy it. I hope it's given you something. I'm a big believer that art should serve humanity. I don't believe in art for art's sake. And I hope that this has served you in some way. Please, please, please thrive on feedback. Let me know. Send me an email. Send me a tweet. Send me um, a message on Facebook. We've got the Go to the Naked Geek group on Facebook, or you can find me at David Monteith on Instagram or on Twitter, wherever it works for you. Let me know how you find the season, what you'd like, what you'd like to see more of, anyone you'd like to see interviewed. Please, 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 um, if you fancy donating, then donate, because I want to use that money to help um, make the podcast more accessible and tell a friend. Thank you for coming into my boudoir on a regular basis and sharing this journey with me. The feedback I've got over the season has been um, quite humbling, actually, and has brought uh, has made my eyes sweaty more than once. Um, so thank you for being there. So until season two, you'll take care of yourself. I'm David Monteith. I'm the Naked Geek.